This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. the show. Hi listeners, this is Rachel Duncan. I'm here with my co-chair Jack for the Emergency Medical Minute and today we are talking about sepsis care with Dr. Susan Bryan. And Susan works in the Swedish Medical Center ER and is the Associate ER Medical Director and works with the CarePoint Physician Group. She is one of our ER representatives on the hospital-wide sepsis committee. And Susan, do you just want to talk about how you got involved with the sepsis committee and what that committee is comprised of and who you're collaborating with? So when I became the associate medical director, I um, assumed the role of the ED liaison to the sepsis committee here at Swedish, um, which is comprised of myself as the ED physician liaison, but also ED nursing, as well as ICU intensivists, ICU nurses, and the hospitalist service as well. We also have the sepsis coordinator um, who runs these, these meetings, and the basic premise for these meetings is to provide collaborative care using best practice for sepsis within the hospital. Is any part of this committee work also looking at metrics to measure how we're doing? So that is a large part of the committee work, um, not only to look at our own metrics, but our metrics across the nation and in comparison to other HCA hospitals, but also nationwide as well. And at Swedish, we also do very well um, with our management of sepsis, both within the HCA and within the nation. Can you give us an example of some of those metrics that we would be tracking um, for individual patient cases to sort of tell us how we're doing and where we can improve? The main metrics that we look at are sepsis and septic shock mortality. And okay. those are the things that we try to track over time. Susan, can you talk to us a little bit about the history of sepsis and where um, this campaign called Surviving Sepsis came from? So, in 1999, the American College of Chest Physicians and the Society for Critical Care Medicine came up with guidelines that optimize the hemodynamics of patients with sepsis and septic shock. And um, a doctor named Emanuel Rivers used that as a backdrop um, to direct resuscitative efforts at kind of the most proximal part of a patient's care within the ED and thought that he could maximally improve their morbidity and mortality by starting this resuscitative efforts um, here in the ED. And that was the birth of early goal-directed therapy. So that came out in 2001. And what EGDT did was it screened patients based on um, at least two SERS criteria, evidence of hypotension and um, hypoperfusion as evidenced by an elevated lactate and suspicion of infection. And EGDT was the first um, emergency department-based randomized controlled clinical trial um, to demonstrate a significant impact on mortality in patients with sepsis and septic shock. And so EGDT pointed out that sepsis was no longer an ICU disease. And it made people aware that the key to successful management of this life-threatening um, disease was early rec recognition. And it also um, recognized emergency physicians as resuscitation experts and that they, they have the ability to recognize this disease early on. 
So then ASEP and the Society for Critical Care Medicine went on to fully embrace EGDT and the impact that it had on the delivery of care with patients with sepsis and um, developed the Surviving Sepsis Campaign in 2002 and the resulting guidelines that came from that. Um, there are uh, several campaign goals, not just guidelines, um, that they promote. Um, they want to, it's a building an awareness of sepsis, they want to improve diagnosis, they want to educate um, healthcare professionals, and um, implement a performance improvement program as well. Um, and so that's basically the um, start of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Um, since 2002, it's had several revision of the guidelines, and um, most recently in 2016, the new guidelines came out. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the 2016 update and um, what Colorado ASEP has really done to change their recommendations for ER physicians, how to change their practice to be in alignment with those guidelines versus maybe some things coming out from CMS and other organizations? So I think it'd probably be best to start with what is the difference between CMS guidelines versus the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Um, and of no, ASEP fully supports the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines. Um, the CMS guidelines are more um, established definitions of sepsis that have been established over the years. Importantly, they look at three categories of sepsis. They look at sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. CMS defines sepsis as SERS criteria plus evidence of infection or suspected infection. Um, then severe sepsis is sepsis plus evidence of organ dysfunction, and that can be either several different parameters or just an elevated lactate above two. And then septic shock is sepsis plus refractory hypotension plus or minus lactate. And that, those would be the CMS definitions. Now the surviving sepsis campaign has taken out, interestingly, has taken out the severe sepsis category and just looks at sepsis versus septic shock, which I think goes along with a lot of our previous training in sepsis and makes, seems to inherently make more sense. So they define sepsis as the CMS definition of severe sepsis, which is sepsis plus end organ dysfunction, so sepsis plus an elevated lactate. And then septic shock, again, is just refractory hypotension plus or minus an elevated lactate. So um, that being said, those are kind of the two, two major categories. Um, just to make things even more confusing, there's also a sepsis 3 <laughs> guidelines that just came out in 2016, and that was from the international consensus definitions for septic and septic shock. Um, and I won't go into that very much because it's really hasn't been well accepted and, and not endorsed by ASEP, um, but looks at something uh, called the Q-SOFA score, which is the quick SOFA score. And um, But we're not actually using that um, at this time, and there has not been good enough evidence to support the sepsis-3 guidelines. So here, um, lactate. I feel like has become very important. It's something that we really do up front that maybe a few years ago was not as important in identifying these patients. Would you agree? Absolutely. So um, one of the things that's new in the surviving sepsis guidelines is that um, the normalization of lactate and usually and actually using lactate to guide your resuscitation efforts. So checking it um, initially and then making sure that it's rechecked within six hours. Here in the emergency department, we try to do that and even faster within two hours to see if our if the lactate is going in the right direction. Now, keep in mind that you know lactate 
is not a direct um, indicator of tissue perfusion, and then there's many other things that can cause an elevated lactate, and that if you use lactate alone in guidance of resuscitative efforts, it has not been shown to have any mortality benefits. So it's one part of the bundle that we use, but it's definitely a very important part. Can you talk about other aspects of the bundle that are included here in your practice and that you've made sure are included at Swedish um, to really bring the best patient outcomes possible? So first and foremost would be IV fluid administration and um, getting that on board early, particularly in patients who are hypotensive. The 30 cc's per kilogram bolus is important and a critical part of the surviving sepsis guidelines and CMS guidelines. Once we give the fluids, um, it's very important to reassess and see check a patient's fluid responsiveness. And that's something that is changing and kind of growing within the emergency department as we speak. Um, and using a dynamic uh, indicator of fluid responsiveness versus a static indicator. So by static, I mean like CVP used to be recommended in early goal-directed therapies, and that's kind of gone by the wayside. Um, now we're looking at things like stroke volume changes, um, we're looking with passive leg raise, um, bedside ultrasound I use quite frequently to assess um, IVC collapse with respiration and kind of give an idea of um, bulimic status in patients, um, but looking at things more in real-time hemodynamics. And then after you reassess, then and of course you also want to get early IV antibiotics. Um, and sepsis guidelines, surviving sepsis guidelines recommend within an hour for both sepsis and um, septic shock. The evidence for that is um, not great, but there is good evidence that shows that every hour of delay in antibiotics is in, has a, a significant link in mortality. Yeah, and with the time to, you know, antibiotic, I would add time to appropriate antibiotics exactly. is very linked in studies, and that's an emphasis that I think some folks forget about. Exactly. Um, so really, when you think about a patient, um, are you taking into account things like source and where they came from to guide your antibiotic therapy, or would you say everybody just needs broad spectrum immediately? What's your feeling on that? So I would say... Absolutely not. Not everyone needs broad spectrum immediately, and we should be trying to take in source with every single patient and individualize as much as possible. Um, that was another change with the Surviving Sepsis campaign was to try to actually decrease the use of combination therapy um, antibiotics in patients that, that don't need it um, and having more monotherapy as, as indicated. Beyond... Um early goal-directed therapy fluids and appropriate antibiotics. So you get further down the algorithm, what are some of the other um, points of care that have maybe changed over, that you've seen change over the years on their recommendations? So for example, um, recommendation for oppressor therapy. Have you seen any changes in that over the past 10 years? So I would say that um, the recommendations for oppressor therapy have, in terms of the actual agent, have remained Fairly the, fairly the same. However, it's it's deciding when to use pressors that has changed. So, in using more dynamic um, indicators for for fluid responsiveness, you know, deciding whether a patient needs more fluids after that 30 cc 
per kilo bolus versus a vasopressor is, I think, what has changed. Um, some patients will need more fluids, and it's, it's better to try to determine that before starting a presser immediately, which was, which was the way that it was before. Um, we've kind of gone from this quantitative static resuscitation to a more patient-centered, you know, hemodynamic assessment of patients. Um, and then if you do decide that you, you need pressors in your patient, um, norepinephrine remains the first-line agent, um, you know, followed by vasopressin, plus or minus epi, as needed. Um, and then if you need an ionotrope, if you're having some low cardiac output, um, dobutamine versus epi can be considered as well. You talked about sepsis bundle, and I feel like we've kind of gone through that and explained it. What are your feelings on making sure that the sepsis bundle is provided in an easy toolkit for providers? Um, do you believe in using order sets up front to really guide this type of therapy? And what's the recommendations that we're receiving from our different um, guideline committees? So I personally believe that the order sets are the best way to accomplish these bundles in a timely fashion. Um, that's I think what has given us the most success here at Swedish as well with our sepsis um, protocols here is the use of order sets. It hasn't, I haven't seen a lot of literature representation of, of what would be best in terms of order sets versus not, um, but I think just in our, my own experience here at Swedish that it, they're necessary to accomplish all of the things that you want to upfront and early on with patients. Can you talk to us a little bit about the term sepsis alert and what that means um, and exactly who that pulls into the situation and how you see that maybe either benefiting or not outcomes? So the idea of a sepsis alert is based on the idea of cardiac alerts and stroke alerts and, and the other programs that we have in place here that we do so well with in identifying patients that are critical and bringing sepsis to the forefront of everyone's minds as a critical patient in which we need to act fast and accomplish all of, the, all of these things within the bundle. So the idea of the sepsis alert, I think, was one that came out of the sepsis committee um, to try to identify patients early and quickly based on SERS criteria and suspected infection. Susan, talking about some of these therapies that are really well-established and haven't changed over the years, so the early goal-directed therapy, antibiotics, lactates, things like that, um, what are some other therapies in the continuum of care of sepsis as the patient goes throughout their ED stay into the inpatient side um, that maybe have changed over the years? You know, what has risen and fallen and what is still kind of stuck? There has been some definite changes in early goal-directed therapy, and it's not uniformly recommended um, anymore, and that's particularly with the, the concepts of, you know, requirements for CVP and hematocrit and, um, and central venous oxygenation. None of those are recommended um, anymore, but the, the central aspects of sepsis care have remained the same um, and are a bit clearer, which is just early administration of IV fluids appropriate administration of IV fluids, so higher, 30 mils per keg, um, and then antibiotics within the first hour, and then following lactate clearance. I would say those are three of the mainstays of sepsis um, care that have not really changed and have just been refined. 
the additional therapies and some of the other things that have been tossed about with sepsis care, such as glucocorticoids. Um, steroids really are not indicated unless you have refractory hypotension to fluids and pressors. It's a, kind of an, an additional thing you can have in your toolbox if you think it might be indicated, but definitely not something to use right off the bat. The inotropic therapy, really you want to consider in patients that are hypotensive, but um, have, have any type of cardiac history that could be also contributing to that. It's always hard to get that heart failure patient who's also septic. Kind of the role of uh, procalcitonin has been discussed a bit as well. Really in the emergency setting, it can be drawn and measured to help our intensivist and hospital colleagues kind of follow um, whether or not they can de-escalate their antibiotic use um, to see if this really is infectious versus non-infectious source and try to help reduce length of stay within the hospital by using that as a measurement. There was a recent article that was published in June um, with the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, and it looked at um, the implementation of the sepsis bundle for patients with sepsis and intermediate lactate values. So for those um, lactates between two and four, those are the patients that have the potential, highest potential, I think, to, to decline if we're not aggressive enough. Um, but then you have a subset of patients, um, those with chronic kidney disease and patients with chronic heart failure, um, that you're just not sure how much fluids to give. Um, and that's again where the kind of the dynamic measurement of their um, volume status is important. But in this study, it, it, they actually used the full 30 cc's per kilos in those patients. They got quite a bit more fluids than had, had been given before. And they looked particularly at those patients, and their mortality was lower than the other patients. So just keeping in mind, maybe perhaps, that, that they are still volume depleted and um, that fluids can be of significant benefit in those populations. So a lot of these other therapies and gray areas, I feel like I have been moving targets within the sepsis care yeah. over the years. Um, what do you, would you say to providers that are not adapters or lead adapters to new things coming out on the basis of it's all a moving target, it's just going to change again? I'd say if you look at the history of sepsis that, as I mentioned before, um, hasn't changed that much. The, the basics of sepsis care have remained the same, and if we provide consistent care, then I think that's what's going to benefit our patients um, the most. And by consistent care, I mean, you know, using the order sets, trying to um, make sure that we are in compliance with these bundles, which have been studied extensively and have been shown to be of significant mortality benefit. So um, for those kind of late adapters, um, it is a, a moving target, but it's one that we're continually honing in on and making it easier for us to take care of our patients. So have we seen strides in sepsis care from, you know, 20 years ago to today? Has mor morbidity and mortality gotten better? I mean, it's a really high mortality group, right? It still is a very high mortality. Um, I've seen anywhere from, you know, 10% in severe sepsis to, you know, 20 to 30% in septic shock. Um, here at Swedish, we've made significant strides. Um, we are shooting for a less than 15% mortality, um, and we're working towards that goal. 
and just in the time that I've been involved with the sepsis committee here, we've made significant improvements in morbidity and mortality. And what specific interventions have you worked on with the committee in your years of work with them that have reflected to um, outcome changes? I would say the early fluid administration, so including EMS administration of fluids um, into our um, calculations as well as point-of-care lactates. I think that has made a tremendous impact in our care of sepsis patients. So Susan, we've had this great discussion about surviving sepsis campaign, CMS guidelines, Colorado ASEP giving guidelines, um, and automating all of these things into order sets and sepsis alerts. Um, is that all there is to it? Is there still room for your clinical judgment each day with patients? Um, how do you sort of balance those two things? And is there a place for both of them? So absolutely, I think that um, clinical judgment still needs to be at the, the top of any sepsis patient's care. You have all of these tools available to you, and that's exactly what they are, are, are tools to help you in the, in the care of this patient and to guide you in the care of this patient. However, patient care needs to remain individualized. You still need to use your clinical judgment and acumen. Um, to the best of your ability to individualize therapy for patients. Following protocols is, is helpful in timeliness of interventions, um, but also remembering that each patient is, is different and may need different interventions as well. I think we all know that it's going to continue to be a moving target in terms of finding that balance between following our guidelines and our protocols and also following our own judgment. So it sounds to me like you definitely think that there's room and benefit to both of those aspects. Absolutely. Well, Susan, we certainly appreciate you chatting with us today and enlightening all of us on the history of sepsis, um, various guidelines that have come out, how you've balanced that in your current practice with your clinical judgment, and just this moving target of, of sepsis. So thank you so much for chatting. Thank you.